2 Corinthians 11.30-12.10. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the king of the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. But when I am weak, then I am strong. Hello again. It's, it's great to be with you now for the fourth week. Uh, we have been talking about suffering, about how to understand it, about how to cope with it. Uh, last week, we talked about one of the things we're supposed to do, which is to join God in fighting against it. I, I hope you realize that what Carol was just doing is she was fighting against evil. And I, by praying, and I don't want us ever to minimize that. There was war going on as we prayed with Carol against sex trafficking and against injustice and oppression. And please roll up your sleeves and fight by praying the way she just did. That's one of the things we talked about. We've also talked in the first sermon I preached to you, we talked about the importance of trusting, and FT talked about this today, trusting that God is good, even when it doesn't look like he's, be, he's good because of our circumstances. And then we talked the second week from Hebrews 2 about the wonder that rather than giving us an answer or an explanation for suffering, God has given us himself. God has come into our broken world, and he himself suffered in it, suffered death, temptation, trial, crucifixion, in order to break the power of suffering and death and bring us all out of that horrible condition into which we brought ourselves by our own sin. So those are the three different things we've talked about. Today I want to talk about one final thing. And it's this, about growing through suffering when it comes to us individually. Congressman John Lewis 
you've heard his name, I think. His funeral was just celebrated. He died about 10 days ago. He was a leader in the civil rights movement in our country. According to the New York Times, Mr. Lewis, quote, led demonstrations against racially segregated restrooms, hotels, restaurants, public parks, and swimming pools. And he rose up against other indignities of second-class citizenship. At nearly every turn, he was beaten, spat upon, or burned with cigarettes. He was tormented by white mobs and absorbed body blows from law enforcement. He spent countless days and nights in county jails and 31 days in Mississippi's notoriously brutal Parchman Penitentiary, unquote. A follower of Jesus who practiced nonviolent protest in Jesus's name, Lewis wrote this in his memoir, there is something in the very essence of anguish that is liberating, cleansing, and redemptive. He added that, quote, suffering touches and changes those around us as well. It opens us and those around us to a force beyond ourselves, a force that is right and moral, a force of righteous truth that is at the basis of human conscience. Mr. Lewis found suffering, in other words, redemptive. That's the word he uses. He saw God's gracious hand at work in it when it happened to him. And we can as well. Whether we, like him, are suffering for fighting against injustice or for some other reason. And there are lots of reasons that we suffer. Paul elaborates on this mystery, this hope-filled mystery, in 2 Corinthians, reporting that suffering and hardship can, for us, be the occasion for discovering the presence and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. For as Paul puts it, when I am weak, then in Christ, I am strong. Suffering, in other words, can make Jesus more real to us. It can make Jesus more precious and dear and important to us. So let's take a close look at Paul's story and Paul's argument. Paul tells us, or God tells us through Paul, that he invites us to boast, that's the word he uses over and over again, to boast about the things that show our weakness. Notice how prominent this idea, at least three times Paul talks about it. In chapter 11, verse 30, if I must boast, I guess a bunch of critics were saying, you know, show us your credentials, Paul. Show us that you're worth listening to. You know, boast a little bit. So he says, all right, okay. If if I've got to boast, um, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And in chapter 12, verse 5, on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. And then in chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Paul boasted and he encourages us all to boast in the things that brought him low, that brought him down, that made life tough. And now what does boast mean? It's a key word. We have to figure out what on earth the word means. It's a very strong word in the Greek. It refers not simply or even primarily to words, but to attitudes of the heart. It means to give deep value to something. It means to draw strength from something. It means even to draw deepest delight from something. We often see it on, in the faces of proud parents when their children do well. You know that. If you're a parent, when your children do well, you smile, and there's this deep thing welling up in you of boasting. Or we see it, as we might have if COVID hadn't struck us, in the faces of gold medal winners in the Olympics as they stand on the victory platform with their national anthem playing and their, cloud, and, and their, uh, their flag rising over their shoulders. Now, as a rule, what's so interesting is that the Bible tells us not to boast. It tells us don't do it. Um, since boasting is associated with self-importance and self-sufficiency and the deceit and the conceit and the folly and the evil that tend to flow from them. I mean, listen to a sampling from the Bible, Proverbs 25, 14. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give, who pretends he gave something he didn't really give. Or Psalm 52, 1 and 2. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you uh, worker of deceit. Or Psalm 95, uh, 94, 4. They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They're boasting. They're, it's an expression of arrogance and pride. Or Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. You perhaps may have even sung this as a scripture song I have. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him, let him boast in that he understands and knows me. I, the Lord your God, and so on. So Jeremiah is actually starting to move towards what Paul is telling us, but he begins by saying, don't boast. Now, Paul turns this customary use of boasting on its head in this striking way in 2 Corinthians. Rather than saying, don't boast, he says with a smile, I imagine with a smile, he says, by all means boast. By all means, go ahead and brag and delight. Go ahead and glory. Just be sure that what you delight in, that what you revel in, are the things that undermine your self-importance and your self-sufficiency and your contentment in creature comforts, the things that reveal your weakness and drive you to God through Jesus Christ. So let me talk a little bit more about the two things Paul tells us uh, to boast in. One of them is baskets, and the other is thorns. And I have to explain what I mean by that, but those are the two particular things that are associated with experiences in his own life. The basket, first of all, verses 32 and 33. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Think about this. 
Paul, who had only recently set out for Damascus with all the authority and all the prestige of the high priest in Jerusalem in order to hound other people, in order to hound Christians, has to leave Damascus in the dead of night, lowered through the wall in a basket, probably a stinking fish basket, because he is being hounded now by people. The hound has become the quarry, and he has to be lowered out of the city in a stinking fish basket. Now, this was Paul's, bear in mind, this was his first great adventure as the ambassador, not of just some ordinary king, but as the ambassador and the apostle of Jesus, the king of all kings, including King Aretas. Humbling experience for him, a humiliating experience for him, a frightening experience, I'm sure, a difficult experience for him. And yet, upon reflection, Paul seems to have gotten a kick out of the whole thing. Perhaps he laughed in retrospect, we don't know, but he evidently took it to heart, receiving that whole basket business as a loving gesture from his new master. A parallel might be an Olympian who comes to the games highly favored to win gold, but who doesn't even make it past the first elimination round and ends up boasting about that experience, delighting in it, reveling in it. I'll tell you a personal story. Um, years ago, Jeannie and I, my wife Jeannie and I, were hired to run a summer youth program at a fancy church on Long Island. In the spring, just before that program was to begin, we attended a meet and greet event at the home of a prominent member of the congregation. Upon arriving, we took our seat in the front row as directed, and we were waiting to be introduced when uh, the well-turned-out hostess approached us and said, uh, excuse me, kids, but these seats are saved for the Druze. And we went, uh, we are the Druze. And um, so that was an interesting experience. Of, you see, we looked 12. And that was one of the things that I experienced a lot in my life. Now that I'm 70 and look 39, uh, I'm really happy about it. But back there, it was a difficult thing. It knocked me down a, a peg or two. So question, have you ever been knocked down a peg? Slighted by somebody? Um, humiliated? Ignored? overlooked. That, says Paul, is okay. It's not okay for us to do to other people, no. But it's okay when it happens to us. In fact, Paul says, it's worth secretly delighting in, perhaps even publicly delighting in. After all, we, we know about it, don't we? Because Paul has told us millions of people know about the fish basket. <laughs> uh, the great apostle being lowered because Paul told us about it as he chuckled uh, uh, about that experience. So have a quiet laugh at your own expense. Have a quiet laugh with some friends and with the Lord over whatever has knocked you off your high horse this week, last week, last month. Laugh about it. Don't nurse a grudge, in other words, against that creep, that ignoramus who insulted you. No, let it go. Thank God instead and let him grow you through 
that basket, that smelly old fish basket. So that's the first thing. How about the thorn? That's the next thing. The other experience Paul boasts about is in verse seven. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. Now this perhaps is a harder, um, a tougher hardship to contemplate than the first was. The first is since it was painful and it was unrelenting. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you for some reason, perhaps because of your race or because of your gender or because of your appearance or because of a disability have been knocked down one peg after another all of your life, then this one might well be no more difficult to contemplate than the basket one. But Paul writes about the thorn these words. He says, so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul has had this experience that he can barely describe. He's not even permitted to talk about it, being caught up to the third heaven. He can't even say he was there, even though he was there. He says, some other man, you know, well, it was himself. He's talking about himself. But he writes about this. He says, he says so to keep me from being too elevated uh, by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now we don't, we don't know what the thorn was. It was almost certainly a physical problem. We know it was evil. It was a messenger of Satan. The fact that God used it didn't make it good. It was evil. And thorns are not good. They're evil. And Paul calls it that way. In all likelihood, it was, it was severe. The, the expression thorn in the flesh literally means stake or spike for the flesh, something that Paul felt impaled by, a kind of living crucifixion. He, we also know that it went unrelieved, despite Paul's earnest prayers and strong faith. He tells us in verse 8, three times, three times, the great apostle pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me, and the Lord said, no, it's not going. Remember what F.T. said, sometimes this happens in our lives, and it's really hard. Now, it's a good thing, in my view, that we actually don't know uh, precisely um, what thorn was. The thorn that Paul experienced remains undefined apart, from, uh, undefined, apart from its effect and continuance, because this gives us the freedom to apply Paul's suffering rather broadly to ourselves. Your thorn might be any number of things. Your thorn might be an inconsolable grief. Something is just not going away. It's too painful. It's too, uh, it, it, it has vacated. It has impacted your life much too profoundly and it's still impacting your life and you can't do anything about it. It might be deep wounds from childhood, abuse from childhood, one form or another, which keeps surfacing and seem to be unshakable in the way that you respond in life situations. It might be, as in Paul's case, a chronic severe physical problem. It might be cultural and institutional racism that keeps impinging upon you or sexism that keeps impinging upon you. It might be a cruel or self-absorbed spouse who uh, refuses to change and refuses to leave. It could be a kid at school who keeps picking on you, who is a bully. He just keeps picking on you and no one does any about it and nobody catches him and it just makes life miserable for you. It could be an unbearable job 
situation. It could be small children whom you love dearly, but they pressed in on you relentlessly. At the end of the day of incessant work, you go to bed exhausted and realize that all the work you did to clean up and feed has just been undone. And you have to start all over again tomorrow, doing all the same stuff all over again. And you don't see any noticeable change in your kids, just in gratitude. It could be that whatever it is, more broadly, it's anything inescapable which you have prayed about, ask God to give you relief in, as Paul did, but God has not given you the relief. He hasn't removed it. Paul says that it is just this sort of life situation that we should target for boasting, or at least for contentment in. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Very, very strange. Very counterintuitive. Very difficult. But true. This we must learn to do. Why? Why? Why does... God wanted us to revel, even to delight in our humiliations, those things that knock us down a peg or two. Why does God want us to find contentment in the midst of things that are overwhelming and inescapable? Well, let's try to answer those questions with reference to both types of trials, baskets first and then thorns. God allows baskets because he loves us and he wants us to face the truth about ourselves. Look at verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 30. Paul does not say, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that make me weak. No, no, no. Look at careful. Look at the verb. He says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. The great and persistent delusion in our lives, going back to the day Adam and Eve tried to live without God, is that we think and behave as if we possessed life and power and strength in ourselves. And this is simply not true. It's a lie. Here's the truth. We cannot think, act, walk, play, fight, study, complain, or love unless God chooses that we should have the life and the strength and the opportunity uh, to do so in real time as those things are being done. And we can't even sin without him. You know, he is like the grandfather who gathers us up into his arms so that we can then reach his face and hit it. You can't strike God in the face unless he lifts you up and enables you to do it. And that's just true in terms of natural ability. How about supernatural ability? This is another part of the great delusion in our lives. We are equally dependent, or this is not the delusion, this is the truth. We are equally dependent upon God for spiritual and moral change. What the, God, what the Bible describes as salvation. In John 3, remember Jesus talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. John 3 reminds us that we are born without the life of God in us and that we can neither enter nor even see the kingdom of God unless we're born a second time. 
And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are by nature children of of, of wrath. We are dead. We aren't even alive. We're dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot, if left uh, to our own resources, either understand the gospel or even want the gospel. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian if you are? Not because you were smart, not because you sought God, but because God came after you in great love and great kindness and great mercy and enabled you to see and enabled you to want him in your life. But you see, we're chronically uh, predisposed not to admit to either of those realities, either about natural life or supernatural life, to carry on instead as if life and faith were naturally ours, together with the quote-unquote entitlements of happiness and a comfortable life that we think comes from the faith that we think we have manufactured are for ourselves. And so God puts us into smelly fish baskets sometimes. He brings us humiliations, things that pop the balloons of our self-importance if we let them. Sometimes we just fight and fight and fight and we never learn. Um, God allows these sorts of things and are things that make us laugh with him at our social and religious pretentiousness, things that draw out our native orneriness so we realize, well, we're not such great citizens as we thought we were. Things that sometimes gently and sometimes abruptly bring us back to the simple and yet liberating truth that we are not God's gift to the world. Even if we went to an Ivy League school, we are not God's gift. We're not even God's gift to the church. (laughs) We are simply the recipients of the gifts of God. That's what we are. Um, We are creatures before the creator, sinners before the redeemer, Orphans before the Father, needing adoption, self-centered actors who need to be humbled and forgiven and fixed. And this, friends, it's hard, but it's really, really good because it's true. It comes from the God who loves us. So hurrah for baskets. Okay? How about thorns? Thorns. God wants... Why does he permit thorns in our lives? Because he wants to bring us home to our real home. He wants, us to bring, he wants to bring us home to him. In his mercy, God sometimes brings us severe experiences, unchangeable and overwhelming circumstances which turn us to him like nothing else in life possibly can, like nothing else in life will. Fish baskets wake us up to reality. They make us laugh at our pretentiousness, perhaps. They remind us of how life really works, not by lording it over people, but by humbly serving them as God himself humbly serves us. And baskets come and baskets go. But thorns, ah, there's something else. There's something deeper. They persist when every other remedy fails, even the remedy of prayer. Remember, Paul prayed to have these things lifted, and they weren't. Uh, This thorn lifted, and it wasn't. Thorns bring us not just to corrected thinking about God and ourselves. They bring us to God, period. 
full stop, to the discovery that he is there, that he is here, that he really knows our story for, you know, he was knocked down a peg or two. His whole life on earth, he was knocked down peg after peg after peg after peg. And he too had thorns driven into his flesh. God has been there. He knows the whole story and he's not going away. He's not going to leave you. Nothing can separate you and me from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. And when all that we have in life is just this person who is so wonderful, this great and kind person, God our brother, God our fellow pilgrim, God our fellow sufferer, when everything else is gone or of no value, then we discover what has always been true, but we have forgotten or we have never learned that he is enough, that his grace is sufficient for us, that we were made for him, that what we have wanted and needed all along most deeply is him and not anything else, not careers, not jobs, not health, not a family, not a husband, not a wife, <laughs> but we've been made for him. I'll tell you a story, another story about me. I had a heart attack three years ago, many of you know, almost exactly three years ago, just a, a little bit uh, uh, under three years ago. Now, the heart attack doesn't qualify precisely as a thorn because it's not chronic, uh, apart from the fact that I'll be taking medication until I die, go home to the Lord and don't need it anymore. Nor was it excruciatingly painful, as heart attacks sometimes are, though it was profoundly disturbing and there was plenty of pain in the aftermath of the surgery that put me back on my feet. But still, I think the heart attack qualifies somewhat as a thorn. Let me explain why. Uh, first of all, I myself could do nothing to remedy my condition when it happened. When it struck, I could only lie on the couch with an overwhelming sense that something was profoundly and irrevocably wrong going on inside of me. Later, I could only look helplessly upon my wife and my children and wonder with deep concern if I were shortly to leave them bereft, something I desperately did not want to do. And as I faced my mortality, I had occasion to consider the startling fact that I might soon lose everything, everything that I was accustomed to, my apartment, uh, my sailboat, my books, my relationships, my work, my clothes, my body. And then came flooding in the enormous fact of all facts. God was there. He was enough. And neither my wife, nor my children, nor I could ever lose him. And these realities became enormously significant. They basically eclipsed every other reality in my life. Let me put things this way as we come to a close. God has made us for him. That's what we're made for. We're made for him. He has made us to know him, to love him, and to actually enjoy him, to delight in him. Do you delight in God? Do you delight in him? Or are you just sort of, is he a, is he a, 
traffic cop that you're trying to avoid getting caught doing something bad by. <laughs> I'm sad. That's not what he wants us to think about. He's made us to enjoy him, to find our deepest rest, our deepest satisfaction, and our deepest identity in him. But we only rarely get this. And when we do, we forget it almost as soon as we've remembered it. You know how that works, right? You get it right, you get it clear, and you forget it five minutes later. His many generous provisions, say painkillers, effective therapies, entertaining distractions, kids you love, the presence of friends who love you, comforting words from friends, comforts of all sorts, they much too easily satisfy us. The gifts from God very quickly become God substitutes and we push him away. And they too easily marginalize him. They too easily satisfy us and they too easily marginalize him. And so sometimes he deprives us of them so that we may find him again or for the first time. You know, wise people have called these deprivations. Sheldon Van Auken, a novelist, told the story of his life. He calls those things severe mercies. Severe mercies. Terrible experiences, which in actual fact are the gift of the God who himself has suffered the loss of all things in order to bring us safely with great joy home to him. Not just his joy, but our joy as well. So let me end. Paul heard the voice of Christ. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He heard that voice, but he could never have heard that voice or we he would never have heard it very clearly he would never have been consoled by it so profoundly if he had not first pleaded three times to have the thorn removed from him without remedy then he could hear the voice ask jesus to speak to you Ask him to give you the grace to hear him speak to you. Because when he does those things, we discover that he really is wonderful, that he really is enough, that he really is what we need the most, what we were made for. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that suffering is not in and of itself good. We know that thorns are not good. Humiliations are dished out by people who are evil and cruel when they do it. But we also know that nothing escapes your sovereign goodness and your sovereign hand, not even baskets and thorns. And so, Lord, we look to you for the grace to hear your voice through the things that are hard. We ask for the grace to laugh at our pretentiousness. And we ask for the grace to hear your voice when you say, uh, I am sufficient for you. Lord, would you work this in us? We pray in your matchless, wonderful name. Amen.